I'll actually probably need this tonight just to get over the sound of the rain on the roof and my own strained voice a little bit. <clears throat> well, we come to probably, if not the most, certainly the second most well-known judge in Israel, and that is Gideon. And certainly um, we have the most information about Gideon. His is the largest... Um, representation in the book of Judges. Um, next, and then of course second to him would be Samson, and then the one we just covered with Barak and Deborah. And so we um, come to him, and I'm really tempted to take two weeks, but I've decided to smash it all into tonight. And so we had a little bit abbreviated song service for that reason. And I want to try to tackle him entirely to, if I could do Joshua in two weeks, I could certainly get Gideon done in one. So we're going to look at his calling, ministry, life, and his end. And I want to just uh, share something. I, I talked to Bill a little bit after the service last week about Barak. And uh, it is a good transition into this week when we, where we start with Gideon in uh, chapter 6 of the book of Judges. Um, Gideon at the front end and the back end of his life are very concerning to us. Um, both how he begins, and again, what do we see? We see really a hesitation, a lack of faith, where he's always asking God, show me a sign, show me a sign, show me a sign. It's not enough that you appear to me face to face. That's not enough. He's got to see a sign. He wants to know this and this. And, and uh, so we struggle with, where, is, where are these great men of faith? Well, much like Barak, who does, is represented to us as a man of faith in Hebrews 11, um, faith is not something you are born with, not great faith. I mean, all men have faith, but the idea that these guys were men of faith from the moment they came out of the womb to the last breath they took is not really the biblical representation of what it means to become a person of faith. And that shouldn't be discouraging to you. It should be very encouraging. Because wherever you are in your faith journey, you can't, you don't, you're not stuck there. <laughs> um, and I'm reminded of the disciples to the Lord, Lord, increase our faith. That was their, quest, their, their uh, prayer to him when he was here on earth. Um, and certainly, uh, the indication is, is that your faith is going to change. It's going to either increase or decrease, and yes, it does decrease sometimes. So don't just sit here and say, I'm a man of faith today, and sit there and, you know, be complacent, because you will quickly not be a man of faith, maybe at all. And Hebrews, again, the faith chapter is there, but it's also the big book about warning you, don't leave the faith. And so we have these examples, and yes, Barak becomes an example. What did it take to get him started? It took some prodding by the prophetess Deborah. But again, like I just shared very quickly last week that you know he showed up and he fought the battle and it doesn't show that she was holding his hand while he was doing that. He chased the king right to Giles' tent and uh, he went on and had other exploits and they defeated um, the enemy soundly from there the rest of his life. So obviously... His faith started out very small to the point that he wasn't willing to heed God's call first. 
He wasn't even willing at second to do it without Deborah going with him. But by the third time around, he's doing it on his own. And so he arrived. And there's a journey. And it's that journey of faith we want to talk about. And I don't think anyone is a better representation of that maybe than Gideon. This is about a journey. Unfortunately, that journey is going to go full cycle and it's not going to just keep increasing. If you want that kind of exponential faith, you have to go to a guy like Joseph for that, uh, really, and uh, maybe Joshua, Moses, a few others like that. But not Gideon, as we're going to see. So we start off, of course, with the problem. Israel went back into sin um, after the judgeship of Deborah and Barak, and we find uh, them now being oppressed by the Midianites in chapter 6. And it describes how they came in. And basically they were raiding it. They weren't really ruling Israel. They were raiding Israel. They were coming in. If it starts to hail again, you will not hear me. Okay? Um, we'll just stop and pray or something quietly to ourselves. We're having a lot of hail here, Scott, today. We've already been hailed on quite a bit. So um, that's one of the disadvantages of a metal roof, metal building. So um, the Midianites would come in. Every time it got close to harvest, they started showing up in droves. And they had a new weapon, not chariots. Their weapon were camels. And they were using camels as their means of very quickly attacking, coming into Israelite territory, and they would clean it out of all their agricultural work for a year. Um, and so... Long before the book, The Seven Samurais, that was turned into the Western movie, The Magnificent Seven, there was Gideon, okay? And so much like is portrayed in that movie and in that story, these were coming in and raiding them and taking away, and it was impoverishing Israel. They didn't have any sheep and goats. They had almost no... Uh, None of their wheat really was kept, and, and so all of their agriculture was being stolen from them or destroyed by the Midianites and the Amalekites coming in. Now, if you don't know where they're from, remember, um, jo not Joseph, Moses' father-in-law was the guy that started the Midianites. Okay, that's Midian. So, yes, they are related to at least some of the Israelites through Moses. And they are to the south. Um, that region right now would be Saudi Arabia. You're going to turn me up. We might have to just go over to the basement of the house where you can't hear any of the storms. It's wonderful. So, here come these people out of the south. The Amalekites as well would have been on the other side. And so you're coming from the region to the east of the Gulf of Aqaba, the area where um, Israel crossed the Red Sea um, into the land of Midian. And so we have them coming up, raiding up north, even up into Gaza and up along the, the Jordan and really Transjordan, both sides of the Jordan River. And that's the problem. This is what God is using and it happens seven years in a row. Right at the time of harvest, here come the Midianites and the Amalekites coming in and 
devastating them. Um, and the indication is they're killing some people too, of course, along the way. This isn't transpiring and Israel's just sitting there going, oh, they're doing it again. Um, in fact, there's evidence that all of Gideon's brothers were killed by them. Whether that happened before the account here begins in chapter 6 as part of that, before his calling or in the early stages of it, um, we're not really sure, but Gideon's, all of his brothers are killed by the Midianites. They say, how do I know that? Because at the end, when he captures the Midianite kings, he asks them about his brothers. You remember my brothers? Oh, yeah. There were, I don't know how many, like 50 of them. And they're all like you. You know, mighty men of valor. And he says, yeah, if you'd have spared their lives, I'd spare your life. And he goes ahead and kills those kings because they had killed his brothers. And so whether that was part of what's going to precipitate this, certainly this is a man who... Uh, has some level of courage, um, but he's coming to his manhood, and he is really getting down to being almost his dad's last son. And it's going to be a little interesting because that's how it's going to end up with his children as well. And we're going to see a cycle here in Gideon's life. And so God's going to come to Gideon. We're going to pick up in chapter 6, verse 11. It says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, Abiezrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. And Gideon said, Oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up out from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to him, O oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And that doesn't mean the weakest, that means the youngest. So he said, oh my Lord, how can, oh, I'm sorry. And then the Lord said to him, surely I will be with you and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Then he said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. And we're going to stop right there. And so he's being confronted. We find him hiding. Um, I think uh, this is going to be really hard. Since there's so few of us, let's move out of this room and go into that room where there's a double ceiling, and we'll continue. How about that? Because I can't hear myself hardly. I can leave the microphone on, right? It'll keep recording. All right. All right, please grab a seat. Good, you brought one with you. Just sit over there. I'm going to stand at this end if you guys want to sit at that end. Where are you going to be, Pastor? I'll be up in this end. The young ones can grab these red chairs even, these little red ones in here.
up there. All right. Wow, that's something else. What are you doing? Okay. All right. Well, you've got more chairs than people now. You've succeeded. I don't need a chair. So Scott, Scott doesn't even need a chair. Now he's got the table. So. All right. Very good. Now you can hear me fine. Scott, you can probably hear me too. No, it's letting up, but it's not stopping. So here comes the Lord to confront Gideon. And wow, um, he's threshing wheat in the wine press, which is enclosed. That's an enclosed place. Um, and he's hiding. He's hiding the wheat from the Midianites. He can't do this in the open. Normally you thresh wheat by throwing it up in the air and you let the breeze take it. He's doing it by hand, and this is really difficult to do what he's doing. And so when, we, when the angel of the Lord comes and says, mighty man of valor, this guy is no weakling. Um, some people, you know, he says he's the weakest, the, the, the least among his brothers, but this guy is no weakling. And so by this point, Israel is pretty much taken to the caves. In fact, it says that this is the time period when they made many of the caves in around Israel. Israel. So you go to Israel, there's lots of caves that are man-made. And this is the time period when many of those were made. So when you hear about the Qumran caves, okay, and you think about all those caves, those are not all natural. It was during this seven years that Israel went out and dug many of those caves to live in, to hide from the Midianites. And so they took to the mountains and they, and it says they dug caves. And that's where they were living. Well, he is in a wine press. Uh, and we visited one of those in, in Nazareth. They have one set up like the olden days. Um, kind of a little little Nazareth, they call it, I think. And um, you can go visit, and they have a set up like it would be a little little village. And one of the things they had was a wine press that's functional. And uh, so certainly he's not using the wine press, but he's in the room. And he's doing all this. The angel of the Lord appears to him. And so he has a complaint. He says, well, where is God? He's like, well, I'm standing right here. Well, prove it to me. So he's going to go make a meal, and this is not going to be like an hour. Okay, He doesn't have a microwave. He says, well, you stay right here, and I'll go prepare something. And we'll see if you're the Lord's representative or the Lord himself. We're going to find out. And so he goes, and he prepares a goat, and he prepares some bread out of the meal that he is He's got the wheat, so now he's going to grind it. And yeah, he's got to grind that wheat. He's got to make the thing. He's got to cook it. Um, he's butchering a goat. He's preparing cooking it. Those two things are not something you do in an hour. All right. So he is asking, and this is very typical this period of time, for the Lord to just hang out. I'll be back in three or four hours, and we'll flush this out. And so he presents it, and he's really not serious until the angel of the Lord simply consumes that little meal with fire that comes right out of the rock that it's set on. And suddenly Gideon realizes who he's dealing with. And he's dealing with the Lord, with God himself. 
Now you think that's going to that's gonna give me all the faith I need to do everything God commands. If God would just appear to me personally, I'll have all the faith I need. Wrong. He still isn't sure. And so God says, I want you to, and so it has a test act for him. I want you to go, your dad is the caretaker of the Baal for your town. So I want you to destroy it tonight. And there's a statue beside. I want you to destroy the statue as well. I want you to destroy it right now as the first act of obedience. Based upon the fact that you now realize I'm God. Well, because I can't work with you if you believe in me and still are tolerating this in your own home, in your own household, in your own community. So purify your community, your household first, and then I'll tell you what I really have for you. Ultimately, I want to deliver all of Israel from the Midianites through you, but you're going to have to demonstrate it. And this is the development of faith. God reveals himself. You respond with worship. God then says, I have this task for you. And so he does it. He's afraid of everybody, and rightly so, we find out later on. Rightly so, because they're ready to kill him for doing this. So because he's afraid of the town citizens, he does it at night. But he doesn't do it alone. He gets ten guys to help him. And if uh, ten men know that you've done something, it's not a secret anymore, right? Uh, and so it doesn't take long for the whole city to find out who did it, um, and it and they're ready to kill him. And it's only by the intercession of Gideon's dad that they don't kill him. And uh, that's where he gets his nickname. His dad gives him his nickname. If you want to know how committed his dad was to Baal, listen to the nickname, Jebu Baal. What does that mean? What is his dad's nickname for him? No, it's not Jebu. It's it's. Jerubal. Yeah, it's Jerubal. That's his nickname, which means Baal will plead. In other words, if, if Baal wants my son dead, let Baal kill him, was the conversation he had with everybody. But he nicknames his son Jerubal. And so here's a guy that destroys a Baal, but his father is so committed to it that he nicknames his son Jerubal, and that sticks with Gideon. He is known more by that nickname from now on than he is by the, na- by the name Gideon. Jebu Baal. Baal pleads, or uh, and other people have other ideas of what it means. But So we have, we have the, um, this nickname that's going to follow him. That's how committed his community was to the Baal. And probably an Ashtoreth was what the statue was. They tore down, but we're not really told that. And so we find now we've got to deal with this. Um, he wasn't sure this was God and still had his complaint, prepares this meal. God shows his power, says, okay, I want you to obey me in this act. He does it in secret. That's not very much faith involved there, right? There's more fear than faith, but he does obey, but he does it in secret. And so when I see Christians trying to obey the Lord, but they're kind of sketchy when they're in public and they're kind of mousy about their faith I'm like about who they're following and obeying um, I don't condemn them I just say well you're starting you're, you're on the road somewhere we can we can build on that eventually hopefully you'll trust the Lord enough to obey him openly but uh, if you're obeying him secretly then okay but God tends to bring it out 
So God brings it out, and uh, Gideon doesn't have to defend himself. His father does that, and uh, and now God is saying, "Okay, you've purified it. You've done. You've been obedient. Now I'm going to sh- tell you the great thing I want you to do. You're going to take out the Midianites, and so c- blow the trumpet, gather the army. Um, there's no time to delay. Remember, we are already in the harvest, so there isn't um, three months preparation. There's there's no time to gather and train an army, nothing like that. Um, we are already in the harvest because he was already threshing the wheat. So the Midianites were already on top of them. They were around and about. So Gideon blows the trumpet and we get 32,000 men come to him. And he's sitting there going, well, I'm not sure we should attack. <laughs> uh, maybe I was a little premature blowing that trumpet. And so he comes to the Lord and says, Lord, you sure this is what you want me to do? And uh, if this is what you want me to do, if you really want me to attack them, and he, and he basically comes down to he's got to have three motivational encounters with God. And one is the fleece. And when you hear about it, have you put out your fleece. Well, this is Gideon, the story of Gideon. And so he puts a fleece out on the ground. He says, Lord, I want it to be full of dew in the morning and the ground around it to be completely dry. Comes up in the morning, and he rings out, and he rings out a lot. I mean, not, it wasn't just a little damp. It was a lot. And he says, okay, well, that's pretty good. Are you convinced? No. All right, let's wait another day. Um, how about if tonight you do the reverse and have dew all around and the fleece completely dry? Wakes up in the morning. That's exactly the circumstance. And so you think, well, that's certainly enough. The fleece test has gone by. But God's still not done trying to build up his confidence and his faith that you can trust me. And so they send some people down to the outskirts of the Midian camp. And there, supernaturally, God, all right, the same night that he's making the fleece dry and the ground dewy, the same night he has prepared for Gideon not to be ready to accept that fully, he has given a dream to one of the Midianites on the outskirts of the camp in one of their guard facilities. And here comes Gideon's representative and, and Gideon. And, and what does he dream? Well, he has this strange dream about a loaf of barley that comes in and knocks down all the Midianites. And they said, well, this has to be the sword of Gideon. And so Gideon goes back. By this time, he's, he's obeyed God again and trimmed the army down to, from 32,000 to 300. God says, that's too many for you. And I say, well, how does God increase your faith? How does God increase our faith? He does it by increasing the odds against you. <laughs> right? It has to be that way. Because if you have anything else you can trust in, you'll trust in that naturally. You'll naturally say, well, we just had superior weaponry. We had superior numbers. We had superior tactics. Whatever it is, it's easy to start Trusting in that. And God says, the way for me to increase your faith, Gideon, is to increase the odds against you. And then when you have victory, you will know where it came from and you will trust me. And so when you face ridiculous opposition, um, don't count that as God making your life hard. Just look at that and say, God is helping me to learn to trust him more, to have more faith. 
Am I going to trust him now? When my group is diminished this much, am I going to trust him when it's down to now 300 against what is consistently in the book of Judges, an innumerable number of Midianites and camels. Too many to count. And so he's going to go up with 300, and again they hear this dream and its interpretation. That's what's phenomenal. So you have one Midianite have a dream, and he tells it to his buddy Midianite at the guard tower, and his buddy Midianite, this is the sword of the Lord, and they're going to defeat us. So you have the dream and the interpretation of the dream among the Midianites. And yes, God does those kinds of weird things. We, all, we think that God can only do things with Christians, but he does do things like that to unbelievers. Um, and so, uh, well, we got to do it then. God has prepared everything, and so he does engage some tactics. He gives them all pictures he gives them all trumpets. He gives them all candles, lanterns, and they're going to surround the camp in three waves. So he's got three sides of the camp, giving them one way of escape, um, which is towards the Jordan River. And so he lines them up. I want you to notice, this is what he does. We have no, here's what's in their hand. No swords, no spears, no slings. This hand has a pitcher, a clay pot, with a candle under it. This hand has a shofar, a horn. And you're going to go to battle with a pitcher and a shofar, a clay pot and a horn. This is his tactic. Now, is there probably a, a weapon on their belt? Yes. Um, probably they're all carrying a sword because of what's going to happen afterwards. They're all armed, but in their hand, at the engagement with the Midianites, they are not armed like we would think of them armed. So he says, as soon as you, you just follow my direction. And so they're going to break the clay pot to expose the light. They're going to blow the horn, or is it the other way around? Blow the horn and break the clay pot? I think that's the direction. I, I, all right, they, they blew the trumpet, broke the pitcher. That's what I was thinking, that they sounded it, and then they all broke the pitchers, and then the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And that just freaks out the Midianites. They're already on their toes because why? They've had the dream and its interpretation. If you think that was just between two guys, it just went like wildfire through the camp. And as soon as they see that, what are they thinking? They're thinking that each one of those horns and each one of those pitchers represents an entire division of an army. They think they're facing possibly 300,000. Not 300. They're thinking that's representing, or maybe 30,000, whatever thousands they thought it represented, they were seeing these as representative, that each one of those was blowing the horn for their own group. And they were thinking they had 300 units coming at them, not 300 individuals. And so they run. They just, they don't even, and then on the way, they're, they think that each other are the enemy, and God's done this before, and they kill each other. And a great slaughter starts, and in the midst of this, of them running, and the 300, <laughs> I just, in my mind, I got to see 300 guys with a ram's horn and a, and a light chasing them, ah, screaming at the top of their lungs, and they're all running away. Um, while they're doing that, while they're chasing the Midianites, and the Midianites are killing each other, okay? So far, we don't really have us slaughtering them. It's them slaughtering each other because they're afraid of us. Um, 
it sounds kind of like the inner cities of America. You know, we're mad at you, so we're going to kill each other um, and burn each other's businesses down, things like that. Uh, and so we, we um, see in the midst of that, then Gideon blows a horn. He invites everyone in. Now, what tribe is Gideon from? He's from Manasseh. And Manasseh has two groups, right? Do you remember Manasseh? Right. So they were separated. Half of the tribe stayed on one side of the Jordan. Half the tribe stayed, went to the other side of the Jordan. And so you're going to let that Maycumbers in, please, there? Right behind you. And we might want to. Thank you. Oh, they're young. They're young. They're still on the ground. You just turn on the AC. Just flip it to cool. Yeah. So we find the... Um, you can hear the echo from the big room. You get stereophonic. You get stereophonic. Here. I, I'm getting really hot, so... Let's go out on the porch. Yeah, we can't hear. It's cool enough in here, out there, that the AC didn't even turn on when I turned it on. So, so here come the other tribes, and we have this great route. And uh, of course, we have Gideon being victorious. Um, there's a few hiccups along the way. Um, they're going to chase the Midianites for 50, over 50 miles. Um, so I want you to start thinking, just sit down, please. They're, they're comfortable, they're relaxed, they're settled. So for 50 miles, they're going to chase these. And, and this isn't just a 50-mile foot race. They are engaging in battle. They're slaughtering um, the Midianites. They're chasing them over the Jordan. And so they are exhausted, and they ask for help from two cities along the way. Both cities said, you haven't captured the kings yet. We're not helping you. And so Gideon says, I'm going to come back to you later. I'm not going to deal with you now. We've got our work at hand. Um, we're going we're to deal with you later. And uh, he keeps chasing them until they capture both kings, both of the kings of the Midianites. And he brings them back. And, of course, he deals with both of those cities, kills all the men in one of them and the other one. He finds out who all the elders were that refused him aid, and he gives their names to the population of the town and says, either you do what I said, or we're going to kill you all. And so they gather the elders, and they, <laughs> and they literally, it says, tore the flesh with briars. And so that whole idea is they took them, strip them off the, to down, and just start going after them with, um, with uh, thorny plants. And uh, very, uh, and it's really just the leadership that denied them aid. And so we find that punishment on those that didn't aid Gideon. So Gideon goes from a man who's like, I don't know, Lord. First of all, I don't know if you are the Lord. I still have a complaint on how you treat it. Where are the miracles? And that question he asked at the beginning, where are the miracles, demonstrates where his faith was at. You know, if you were really God, where are the miracles? Well, then they start coming in. And he responds with obedience, breaks down the altar of Baal, wants check it out again, let's make sure, uh, and God gives him some affirmation, and then he just goes full bore. And we find him um, 
giving a great victory. Now, the results of that victory <coughs> are good and bad. The first one is good. The people want to make him king. And he says no. And this is where the strength, his strength in his faith and in his encounter very early on come into play. He says, no, the Lord God is your king. I will not be your king. And so we begin, you say, where were the seeds of the idea that Israel wanted a king? Well, it really was in the time of Gideon. And it's going to come out with one of his illegitimate sons uh, after his death that's going to set himself up as if he's king. Um, but that's not going to persist and God doesn't uh, count that, really. But um, he says, no, the Lord is your king. And I'm not going to become king over you. I, I and he does lead Israel to be obedient to to the Lord, but he only asks one thing of them, and he says, "All of you people, in your victory over these Midianites, and the Midianites all had gold earrings. They were Bedouins. They were very migratory. So these people didn't stay in one place very long. Anyway, that's why they come in and raid and leave. They didn't really." dominate the area except at the harvest season. He says, I, all I'm asking for you for is the gold earrings. I don't need anything else from you. I'm not, I'm not exacting any taxes, but uh, as a memorial and as a, a way of honoring Gideon for his role leading them, they pile up and they all bring out the gold earring. And there's a mess of them. And he melts them down and makes himself an ephod, a little idol. And this is where even faith that has grown to Gideon's level of doing great exploits for God can be quickly endangered. What was wrong at home growing up? God wasn't the God of his home growing up. Baal was. And his nickname from his dad, Jerub Baal. That's what they known him as, what Israel knew him as, Jerubal. This ephod, it says, became a snare to Gideon. At first it had just a memorial idea. This is just uh, something to remind me of the great victory that God gave us. And we can all set those things up and say, well, this picture or this, you know, and... Um, you know, we all have those things around the house that remind us of something Thing, some events, some happy thing that happened in our life. Um, if you go through my house, you will find stuff from different trips that we've taken um, or that you, some of you have taken and brought us. Um, you'll find pictures from my wedding and things like that. And uh, they're just things to help us remember that. Well, that's what it started out as, but it says it became a snare to Gideon. And it became more and more and more important in his sight. And, his, and this, I believe, is one of the reasons the, the circumstance of his children is not unexpected. It's because what kind of home did they grow up in? They grew up in a home where the ephod was almost as important as God and maybe late in his life became more important than God. This hunk of gold 
taken from all the dead Midianites' ears, melted down, and then used. And so um, we get to chapter 8. Verse 27, it says, Then Gideon made it, that is, the, the, all the gold from the, that he personally acquired, plus the seven or 1,700 shekels of gold from the earrings. He makes this ephod, and he made it into an ephod and set it up in his city, Ophrah. What was his first job to do? Destroy that in the center of town, that Baal, and the statue beside it. And now... He has replaced it with an ephod. Granted, maybe he intended at the beginning to make it a memorial for the great victory they had. But, keep reading, and all Israel played the harlot with it there. It became a snare to Gideon and to his house. And God tolerated that. So at least during Gideon's life, because of the growth, the, the obedient faith that he had and they exploited it, it, almost all of Israel was walking with the Lord um, but in, in his hometown and in his life and in his family the ephod replaced God and so when we get to what happened when Gideon dies and that brings us to chapter 9 um well, let's just back up uh, better. Notice in verse 29 of chapter 8. It says, Then Jerubbaal, the son of Joash, notice they didn't use the name Gideon. In other places, they used Jerubbaal and then parenthesis Gideon. Now they've dropped the parenthesis Gideon. And I think that has something to do with the ephod. Gideon had 70 sons, verse 30, who were his own offspring, for he had... Many wives, and if that weren't enough, he had to have a concubine too. And he had a son by the concubine. So he had 71 male children. Uh, I doubt that they were all male. So this guy is challenging, or, you know, he's, he's, we're, we're at Solomonic numbers here, okay? We're getting up to that kind of, of uh, number of wives. He had a lot of wives. He had 70 legitimate sons, one illegitimate son, Abimelech. And it says that, remember, Gideon and his household were ensnared by the golden ephod that was supposed to be a memorial of the great victory that God gave them. Can a spiritual victory become a place of spiritual harlotry? Yes, where you start counting the victory instead of remembering the God behind the victory. You start recounting the event instead of the God behind it. You start thinking that you had something to do with that. And so they went after this ephod, and what happens? The one illegitimate son goes in and uh, is, in one foul swoop, destroys all the sons of Gideon. All 70 of them are murdered. Um, and this is a horrific thing. To blot out your line, if you will. And Abimelech is going to be killed, well, 
He's going to have a mortal wound by a woman, but he's not going to let that kill him because he doesn't want anyone saying that he was killed by a woman later on because they're going to drop a rock on his head um, when he attacks a tower. But um, he's going to set himself up as king. And I'm sorry, there's one son of Jerubbaal that survives because he hid. So he kills 70, 69 of them. There's one that lived. And he shows up when Abimelech tries to be king and he gives a speech. He says, listen, you know, you had the best and now you're going after this wild weed. And uh, this way you want it, then so be it. But uh, they had mistreated the family of Jubal. And so his one remaining, the youngest son, they hid the youngest, um, survives. But Abimelech is then killed later on. And so we find that the line of Gideon is down to just his youngest, much like the line of his own father. And you have to consider the fact that both of these men led their household away from God into being ensnared in false worship. And so we have some good news and bad news out of the life of Gideon. Are you... Weak in faith, well, much like Barak last week, Gideon this week, that can improve to the point that God can use you to do great things for him. But equally important to learn from this is that you can't sit on your haunches on past glory and think that you can coast then into the kingdom of God um, because there are going to be devastating results of that. And remember from this morning in Lamentations, the sins of the fathers are visited upon the sons. And here the sin of Gideon, of Jerubal, is visited on his sons. And 69 out of 70 are murdered. And the one illegitimate one dies, really young. And you have one survive. Why? Because he thought to replace, to take the, something that God had, a gift of God that God had given him and made it an idol. And so we need to be careful about making the gifts of God the objects of our worship instead of God himself. And I say, well, what do you mean? Give me an example. What do you mean by the gifts of God becoming an idol instead of the God who gave that gift? I think for many people... Um, there are several of those. Um, I think in a lot of your charismatic churches, I think the charismatic gifts become their idol and not the God who gave them. And so they're abused and they're focused on um, in a manner that God never intended and never taught it. I think for some people, a certain version of the Bible becomes their God. And that becomes their focal point instead of the God who gave it. And why did God give it to us? Uh, why did God give us God's Word? You know, we had that whole study on the origins of Scripture um, why did he do that? Why did he give it to us? And once we understand its purpose and the giver of it, our, the object of our worship is God, not the Bible. We do not worship this book. We worship the God of this book. And it's very easiest for us to take something that God has done in our life, something, some gift of God, and worship it instead of God who gave it. And so we have 
you know, both lessons from Gideon. We have at the bookends of his life, and we see this cycle, and we're like back down, and we're like, oh, how could he have done that? It's easily, easily. And the fact is, we all have a propensity to do that. We all have a tendency to worship the work of God instead of worshiping God himself. Worship the gift of God instead of worshiping God himself. Of worshiping um, a, a victory that God has given us instead of God himself. And um, I encounter some people that have all of their faith in a person. Whether it be their pastor and they'll talk about you know this, well, you cannot supplant God in that place. And they'll follow that person to the end of the earth, whether they become heretical or not. doesn't matter. They're committed to them. Well, that's what Gideon's sons were. And where did it get them? Into trouble? That was the city, his hometown. What, what happened? They all became ensnared by the ephod. And... Um, there is a tabernacle in Israel. If you really want to set up a memorial, you know, collect the gold and send it to the tabernacle. They'll find a use for it. It could have been added to the storehouse that uh, was built up in the time of David for the building of the temple. But he didn't. He wanted it for himself as a memorial, as a reminder, and sometimes memorials become idols, and it's easy for it to happen. Um, we love memorials. Um, go to Washington, D.C., you can't hardly drive a mile without running into one somewhere. Okay? Um, and, uh, and in almost every town, we have the veterans' memorials, um, and it's really easy to elevate that and, and forget that those are just memorials of something, um, and ultimately our, we need to be, not let any of those captivate us to the point that we are worshiping those, that those take the place of God in our life. Um, yes, you can have great regard for your parentage, for your lineage, for so-and-so's sacrifice, but it cannot drive your life. God has... The only, is the only one that has that right to direct your life. And so if I'm on my deathbed and tell my kids something and that becomes more important to them than what God said in his word, then they have become ensnared. They have made that their God. And it's harlotry. That's what the word is used there. You're, you're committing spiritual harlotry. And so you can't let anything, even good things historically or presently in your life, supplant God. And yes, even great people of faith can allow that to happen. And will God wink at that a little bit? Yeah, but there will ultimately be some penalty down the road. And once Gideon is gone, that penalty is severe and it is borne by his sons. And 69 out of 70 are murdered in one event, one foul swoop. And so when we um, consider our ways, among them isn't just 
horrible sins that we have committed, but maybe also good things that have become too important to us. Things that even God has given you that become too important to you. And it becomes more important to you than what God would have for you or the balance of your days. That's how we're praying. Lord God, we do thank you again for the opportunity to study your word. And uh, Lord, we know that uh, we see some encouraging words and, and aspects of Gideon's life and some things that are very uh, uh, concerning. But Lord, we know that that is the case really for all of us, that each of us must examine our walk, must examine our motives, must examine ourselves on a daily basis to make sure that there is nothing that supplants you in our life, that we were willing to as we were saying this morning, to surrender all, to give it all up if you demand it of us, and that there be no golden ephods in our life. Lord, guard our hearts from setting up any person, any event, anything of this world, even though given by your hand to us in place of you. And keep us true. And where we fail, that you might remind us of it and call us on it and that we might respond um, by returning to the biblical faith that you seek to establish in all who are your own. Our praise is in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for your flexibility and understanding.